Hello, this is Esther Provo, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the June 10th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And on to our first article. Canada seizes Russian cargo jet at Pearson Airport and plans to surrender it to Ukraine. Canada has ordered the seizure of a giant Russian cargo jet that's been grounded on the tarmac at Toronto Pearson Airport since the 2022 start of the war in Ukraine. Today, Canada is sending a clear message to the Russian regime that there will be nowhere left to hide for those who support and profit from the Kremlin's war of aggression, Melanie Jolly, Minister of Foreign Affairs, said in a statement. Jolly made the announcement as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a surprise visit to Kiev to meet with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Trudeau said in Kiev that the federal government would try to forfeit the plane to Ukraine so that it cannot be used to support Russia's war effort. It is Canada's first physical seizure after making amendments in 2022 to the Special Economic Measures Act and the Justice for Victims of Corrupt Foreign Officials Act to allow the government to seize, forfeit, dispose, or redistribute assets belonging to sanctioned individuals and entities. The Russian aircraft, an Antonov-124, is believed to be owned by a subsidiary of Volga Dnepr Airlines LLC and Volga Dnepr Group, two entities against which Canada has imposed sanctions. The large white and blue cargo set, which can carry the weight of about 83 cars, had arrived in Canada on the same day that sanctions were announced last February. Neither the Greater Toronto Airport Authority nor Transport Canada have said what happened to the pilot or the passengers. Cho's visit to Kiev at the invitation of Zelensky comes amid signs that a long-awaited spring counter-offensive against Russia could already be underway. Canada will be part of the multinational efforts to train fighter pilots and to help maintain and support Ukraine's fighter jet program, leveraging Canadian expertise in these areas, Joe said during a new conference. He added that Canada will join a team of countries helping to maintain tanks while providing additional missiles and rounds of ammunition. The two leaders also issued a joint declaration with a dozen points that largely reiterated Canada's actions in support of Ukraine. It mentioned the need to strengthen efforts to ensure the effective implementation of sanctions and to prevent counter circumvention in and by third countries. Jolly also announced today that Canada is imposing additional sanctions against 24 individuals and 17 entities in Ukraine as part of the Special Economic Measures Ukraine regulations. Since Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014, Canada has imposed sanctions on more than 2,500 individuals and entities in Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and Moldova including coordination with allies and partners, with files from the Canadian press and Michelle Honey. And on to our next article. Your paycheck has finally closed the gap with inflation. A good thing despite the Bank of Canada's opinion. When inflation first roared to life after the COVID lockdowns, wages for Canadian workers were left eating its dust. Driven by inventory shortages, broken global supply chain, and consumer desperation, all legacies of the pandemic, prices took off in spring 2021. Wages, in contrast, were much slower to adjust to the new post-pandemic reality. Through the first year of the resulting inflation, starting in March 2021, 
Average prices rose 6.7%. Average wages grew less than half as much, just 3.2%. And the gap between prices and wages kept growing. Indeed, for 23 consecutive months, year-over-year inflation exceeded corresponding growth in average wages. At the end of that long losing streak for workers, prices were 11.4% higher than two years earlier. But the wages had only grown by 7.4%. The result was a significant decline in the real purchasing power of workers' incomes. Like Wao E. Coyote staring despondently as the roadrunner accelerates into the distance, workers had little chance of keeping up with their much faster arrival. Even though wages were clearly lagging inflation not leading it, the Bank of Canada and some economists still point the finger at overheated labor markets and rising wages as the alleged culprit behind post-pandemic inflation. So workers are being unfairly targeted for tough medicine to clear, cure inflation that they didn't cause. The Bank of Canada has raised interest rates eight times, most recently on Wednesdays to deliberately raise unemployment and undermine future wage gains. The bank mostly ignores the other factors like lingering supply constraints and excess corporate profit-taking that actually fueled post-pandemic inflation. Demanding higher wages. Happily, in recent months, wages have been slowly closing the gap. This is partly because inflation slowed down since last summer, but also because workers individually and collectively are demanding higher wages to protect their living standards. By February this year, a turning point was reached. For the first time in two years, wages passed prices. Average hourly wages grew 5.4% over the preceding year, just slightly more than prices, up 5.2%. This gap persisted from March and April, and almost certainly May. Friday's job reports from Statistics Canada reported that annual wage growth of 5.1% for May, while inflation, which won't be reported until late June, will likely fall to 4% or lower. It's far too early for workers to pop any champagne corks. Two years of laying behind prices reduced your wages by close to 4%. That means that wages would have to go faster than prices by a considerable margin. Say two percentage points a year for a considerable time, say two years, just to repair the damage done to purchasing power since early 2021. Nevertheless, the fact that wages are now growing faster than prices is good news for Canadians who work for a living, and is testimony to the effectiveness of labor policies aimed at boosting wage growth, including significant increases in minimum wage in most provinces except Alberta, and labor law reforms in some jurisdictions to support stronger collective bargaining by unions. In fact, Canada is one of the first countries in the OECD where wages have caught up to inflation. This won't happen in the US for a few months yet, while in Europe, the UK, and Australia, it isn't even close. Now that the wage price tables have been turned, we can expect fear-mongering over the risk of a wage price spiral to reach a fever pitch. Claims that faster wage growth will lock in inflation have been commonplace since this inflation started. But they'll get much louder now that wages are actually growing faster than prices. This ignores, this ignores that after two years of falling real wages, wage growth needs to exceed inflation just to repair the damage done to purchasing power and living standards. This need not reinforce inflationary pressures so long as employers' profit margins, which hit record highs last year, come back to earth and labor productivity grows normally. 
If the Bank of Canada forcibly prevents real wages from recovering their losses of the past two years, it will lock in a terrible maldistribution from wages to profits that occurred during these post-pandemic disruptions. Workers have been through enough since COVID hit. They are fully justified in refusing to give up even more. And on to our next article. Is this the Bank of Canada's last hike in interest rates? Don't count on it. After falling for nine months in a row, year-over-year inflation made a U-turn in April and increased to 4.4%. This hike surprised most financial analysts who were expecting the rate to fall to 4.1% from 4.3% in March. For many, this represents a setback in Bank of Canada's attempt to wrestle inflation down to its 2% target. The bank, however, seemed to consider April's data an anomaly. I remained confident that inflation is on its way down to 3% this summer and to its target by late 2024. The data, however, suggests that the bank's assessment may be over-optimistic. On the one hand, it appears that the headline inflation may drop to 3% this summer, even without an additional interest rate hike, which the bank went ahead with anyway this week, raising the overnight lending rate to 4.75%. But on the other hand, the 2% target seems unattainable unless the bank hikes rates further, causing the economy to go into recession. Let me start by pointing out that the year-over-year inflation rises when the month's percentage increase in the Consumer Price Index, or the CPI, is greater than in the same month of the previous year. And the opposite occurs when year-over-year inflation falls. For instance, CPI increased 0.7% this April, while it rose 0.6% in April of last year, and thus year-over-year inflation increased to 4.4% from 4.3% in March. Interestingly, Year-over-year inflation may decline even when month-over-month inflation rises and vice versa. So does April's data suggest that inflation may be on the rise again? Not necessarily, since one swallow does not a spring make. Indeed, one month's data is not sufficient to determine a trend in April's data. It may indeed just be anomaly. It's more instructive to look at changes in quarterly data. Inflation was relatively high in the first quarter of 2023. The percentage increase in CPI was 1.4%, equivalent to an annualized rate of almost 6%. This is a significant three-month increase and confirms a rising trend. Amount deflation in the, first, in the third quarter of 2022, very low inflation in the fourth quarter, and high inflation in the first quarter of 2023. Hence, inflation has been on the rise over the last three quarters, despite a continuously declining year-over-year inflation. Will this trend continue in the second quarter? Hard to say, but my crystal ball tells me that most likely second quarter inflation will be either similar to the first quarter or slightly greater, and definitely not smaller given April's large month-over-month inflation. If the second quarter's percentage CPI increase were the same as the first, then year-over-year inflation would drop as forecasted by the Bank of Canada to 3% in June. Why would it fall? because this year's second quarter inflation would be smaller than in last year's second quarter, 1.4% compared to 2.7%. Predicting inflation behavior in the third and fourth quarter is, however, a more daunting task. In any case, my crystal ball tells me with sufficient confidence that year-over-year inflation will rise in both quarters. Why so? Because, as we have already seen, inflation was rather inexistent in the second half of 2022. Assuming that inflation falls to 3% this summer, for year-over-year inflation to remain at this level the rest of the year 
there should be a small deflation in the third quarter and very low inflation in the fourth. And this is very unlikely to happen. Therefore, inflation will most likely increase in the second half of 2023. If so, what will the Bank of Canada do? Well, there is only one thing the bank can and will do, increase the policy rate. Both the bank and the government of Canada are convinced that fighting today's inflation is a job for the bank despite the mounting evidence to the contrary. And thus, the bank will increase the interest rate. By how much? Well, another 25 basis point hike in July will not do it, unless 5% will not be the peak of the policy rate. In my view, the misidentification of the source of today's inflation leaves the bank with no option but to continue raising the rate until the economy goes into recession and the unemployment rate climbs sufficiently. And for this to happen, the rate must be increased until the real rate of interest. That is the difference between the policy rate and the rate of inflation turns significantly positive. How much? A crystal ball tells me that in futile attempt to save its credibility, the Bank of Canada will feel compelled to increase the policy rate to around 6% before the end of the year. Gustavo Indart is a professor emeritus in the economics department at the University of Toronto. Susan Delacarte, are safe places suddenly feel unsafe? Here's why Canada's politicians are making it worse. It's only a matter of time, perhaps, before politicians in Canada start accusing their rivals of killing people. Okay, to be fair, the country is not quite there yet, but the rhetoric is definitely heading in that direction. For months now, conservative leader Pierre Polyev has been urging his audiences to blame Justin Trudeau and his new Democratic allies for random acts of violence against people on public transit and in other places much too close to where they live. Justin Trudeau and the Costly Coalition are going to continue to unleash this wave of violence and crime on our streets, Polyev declared at a news conference in Edmonton in April. This week, however, Polyva took exception to the way in which the Prime Minister was linking conservative climate change policies to the wildfires poisoning the actual skies over Parliament. Has he really sunk into the low of exploiting these fires for political gain? Polyva said during Iraq's question period. Difficult as it may be to tune into this overheated level of debate, the politicians are tapping into a disturbing theme that has been running through the news of late. People are feeling unsafe in places that are supposed to be safe. Public transit, classrooms, even soccer fields. Being a politician is also a riskier proposition safety-wise than it was a few years ago. Members of parliament have boosted their own personal security measures in the past couple of years. And as CBC reported last week, the RCMP is looking at ways to expand protection for public officials. Keeping the public's faith in civic order. Beyond the personal toll this takes on politicians and governments, though, this heightened concern about safety raises some important questions about keeping the public's faith in civic order. If the public square and community gathering places are seen as less safe, how are governments supposed to respond? Can they even respond? Many are tracking this development back to COVID-19 and what three years of isolation and public access restrictions did to individuals. When Ontario Soccer launched its program of equipping referees with body cameras a couple of weeks ago, for instance, several people observed how parents in the stands have become far more emboldened in the wake of COVID-19 to threaten and harass the officials on the field. We're just seeing a heightened animosity coming out of COVID, said Michelle Loveless, executive director of the Durham Region Soccer Association. It's like people have forgotten how to be in social public settings. Premier Doug Ford recently voiced his shock over reports from a survey of elementary school teachers that reported a troubling level of violence in the classroom. 
When we all grew up, Ford said, it starts at home. Man, if I will speak for my parents, God forbid I ever went up and hit a teacher. I'd get twice the hit when I got home. Ford, of course, wasn't counseling parents to hit their kids, but he was speaking to the incredulity many feel about the aggressive streak surfacing in people's public interactions, whether with teachers or politicians or fellow citizens. Some areas of violence have increased. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. I talked to Tracy Violencourt, a professor at the University of Ottawa who holds the Canada Research Chair in School-Based Mental Health and Violence Prevention, about whether society is really more unsafe these days. Yes and no, Violencourt says. The evidence on physical violence suggests global reductions for the past two decades, but when the rates of bullying in youth have not changed at all during this period in Canada, except for a reduction during the pandemic. However, she added some areas of violence have increased. For example, technology-facilitated violence like threats, harassment, stalking, impersonation, and image-based sexual abuse and like has increased. Major targets, she said, are politicians, journalists, human rights activists, and members of the LGBTQ community. It's the like Twitter has come to life. By technology facilitated, violent court means social media, which also appeals to have unleashed some of the worst in people. The incivility starts on the computer screen. In other words, and then it leaps into the actual physical square. I remember standing, watching a horde of protesters descending on a Trudeau campaign event in the 2021 election, chanting conspiracy theories and calls to violence. One of my colleagues said it's like Twitter has come to life. Indeed it was. Long before that election and the pandemic, former Privy Council clerk Michael Wernick testified at a Commons committee in 2019 about his fears about how public life has become less safe. I worry about foreign interference in the upcoming election campaign, Wernick said. I worry about the rising tides of incitements to violence when people use terms like treason and traitor in open discourse. The former top public servant told me this week that the toxicity has definitely increased since then. The atmosphere, the environment is definitely harsher, Wernick said. He worries about the deterrent effect it will have on people, not just on those running for office, but people who want to be teachers or in any position of authority. Yet he also notes that in Toronto, where public transit violence is a major issue in the current mayoralty campaign, more than 100 candidates have put their names forward. Wernick said that he's pleased that Canada, for the most part, has not gone down the road of other countries, with politicians blaming immigrants for threats to public safety. It's an interesting observation, while Canada is no stranger to race-based violence and anti-immigrant sentiment. Politicians are more likely to look at domestic causes for the disruptions in community safety, homelessness, the cost of living, addiction, mental health troubles. Dan Arnold, now at the Palora Public Opinion Firm, has worked in both worlds as a gatherer of opinion for governments to digest and as the person within the halls of power who sifts through that data for clues on how to govern. From 2015 to 2021, Arnold was the head of research for Trudeau's government. Public safety is one of those issues that ranks high on the scale of public demands for immediate action, said Arnold. It's one of those issues where it can rise up quickly, he said, especially when the incidents hit in places where people feel that they could personally be a victim, like in the classroom or on transit. Well, I ride public transit, so that could impact me, right? So it's very instinctual as an issue of safety. It's kind of an emotive, instinctual, primal sort of concern. As a result, this won't be the kind of thing where the public is going to be happy with a five-year plan 
or announcement of mere dollars or strategy, Arnold said. Politicians of all stripes are going to be pressed about what they're doing now, immediately to make people feel safer. Arnold points that neither the political right nor the left can claim to own this issue, though both will try to exploit it. Conservatives will present themselves as tough, law and order types, but liberals and progressives have staked strong claims to be the champions against gun violence. It hasn't escaped Arnold's notice either that public safety issues, unlike economic ones, aren't ones where conservatives are asking the government to get out of the way. The influence of political conversation. I asked Violent Court whether it mattered how politicians talked to each other about this issue. For example, if the public's faith in institutions is declining, how much will political conversation have any influence? On the one hand, Violent Court does have a lot of views like Ford about how this starts at home and how families speak to each other. But she also believes that public words matter. And in her mind, there's no question that we're really eroding civil norms. We're changing the landscape, and that's a problem. So yes, when politicians start flooding the public square with playground bully rhetoric, we shouldn't be surprised when citizens start talking like bullies too. In her work, Violent Court said, it's a moral disengagement. The process of moral disengagement is a gradual one in which people perform minor acts of incivility, which in time lead to more egregious behavior. The issue with incivility and aggression in politics is that people see powerful people being reinforced and sanctioned for their poor behavior. This impunity is problematic because people are more likely to imitate people who are powerful and rewarded for their behavior. This changes our normative beliefs about aggression and impacts future behavior. What this means in layman's terms is that politicians might want to reverse the dissent of their rhetoric or public safety, or at least hold off before they're tempted to blame their rivals for random violence and mayhem. That's not making the world more safe. And on to our next article. Death of an ER. Why the closure of a rural Ontario emergency room spells trouble for a healthcare system. Dozens of people gathered recently for a candlelight vigil outside a small hospital in Minton, Ontario. They weren't there to mourn the loss of one specific life. They were there, rather, to mourn the loss of a critical service that has saved so many lives. This month, in a controversial decision, the Halliburton Highlands Health Services officially closed Minden's emergency department. Minden's ER services have been consolidated with emergency department in Halliburton and 25 drive away. The Minden site will provide physiotherapy, bone densitometry, and outpatient x-ray services by appointment. By the heartfelt display of gratitude for the healthcare workers that kept Minden's ER up and running for nearly 30 years could not reverse its fate. Going forward, local residents and cottagers who descend on Minden in the summer months, more than tripling the town's population, will be forced to seek emergency care elsewhere. This outcome will be felt acutely not only by Minden residents who require urgent medical care, but by those who provide it. We will have an increased demand for our paramedic services and ambulances, Minden Hills Mayor Bob Carter told the Star in April, speaking about the looming closure of the department. This demand will need to be paid for by the county. On top of that, if the paramedics are busy due to their increased workload, the responsibility for answering medical calls will need to be answered by our volunteer fire departments, Carter said. Severe staffing shortages. The reason for the closure, according to the HHHS, is severe staffing shortages, particularly when it comes to nursing. According to reporting by the Star's Kenyon Wallace, 
the health agency said that the consolidation of the Minden ER was necessary, in part due to severe and persistent nursing shortages, as well as physician shortages at the Halliburton ER. Yet whatever the reason behind this specific ER shuttering or consolidation, the tragic closure is a symptom of a widespread problem crippling the province's health care system. Last year, hospital emergency departments were forced to close across Ontario 158 times. The shutdowns occurred at 24 hospitals, most of them in rural areas, ranging in time frame from 12 hours to a full day. In almost every case, according to the STARS investigation, the reason given for the closures was a lack of adequate staffing. This is a crisis that exists far beyond Ontario borders. Even with what appears to be the worst of COVID-19 behind us, hospitals everywhere are finding it difficult to attract and retain nurses. Indeed, a few months ago, the International Council of Nurses declared the nursing shortage a global health emergency. However, just because the crisis has roots in factors beyond the provincial government's control doesn't mean the government isn't responsible for making it worse here at home. It is simply egregious that Ontario's nurses were subject to wage restraint legislation in the middle of the pandemic. Through that, though that legislation, Bill 124, has since been declared unconstitutional and arbitrators have ruled that nurses should receive retroactive pay for lost wages, it isn't difficult to understand why many nurses or would-be nurses would rather not seek employment in Ontario. After years of wage suppression and disrespect, tangible evidence is needed that their work lives must improve in order to retain them. A spokesperson for the Ontario Nurses Association told the Star in April, the province must make attracting healthcare workers an urgent priority, not by offering them bonuses or by renewing funding to rural and northern hospitals on a temporary basis but by fostering the long-term conditions for a healthy workplace and workload. Premier Doug Ford must display the same respect for nurses and PSWs that he does for police officers. Moreover, the province must get serious about its approach to solving the health care crisis. According to a Damon report from the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario between 2022 to 2023, to 2027 to 2028, the province has allocated 21.3 billion less than will be needed to fund current healthcare sector programs and deliver on its program expansion commitments in hospitals, home care, and long-term care. The report concluded that while the provincial government's measures do address physician shortages in rural emergency departments, it does not provide for a sustained increase in emergency staffing across the province. Canadians are rightly proud of our nation's universal health care, but there is nothing universal about health care that is available to some people and unavailable to others, depending on their address. Unless the provincial government makes a sustained, honest commitment to health care funding and staffing, we fear that ER closures like the one in Minton will not be an anomaly in Ontario, but the norm. And on to our next article. An elixir of life, taurine supplements slowed aging, improved health in animals, studies find. Taurine, an semi-essential amino acid and supplement, may also hold the secret 
to longevity. At least for mice, monkeys, and worms, a new study finds. The paper, published Thursday in the journal Science, found the micronutrient was able to improve the health of animal models and even extend the lifespan of middle-aged mice by around 12%. That said, the authors warned people not to take torrent supplements until they finish clinical testing on humans in the coming years. The study showed that taurines supplemented mice not only lived longer, they lived healthier lives, said lead author Vijay Yadav, a molecular physiologist and assistant professor of genetics and development at Columbia University to the star. In a news release, Yadav added, this study suggests that taurine could be an elixir of life within us that helps us live longer and healthier lives. Taurine levels drop as we age. Taurine, a naturally occurring amino acid produced by our own bodies, can primarily be found in protein-rich foods like meat and fish. The nutrient has many functions, with past studies linking the molecule with bone development, immune function, obesity, and more. Yadav's project started serendipitously around 11 years ago, when his lab noticed that taurine levels in the blood dropped dramatically as people aged. We observed that taurine levels were declining with age, especially compared to embryos. In fact, embryos in humans have five to tenfold higher levels of taurine than older people, he said. They don't know exactly when or why taurine levels drop and are actively looking into it. Can taurine help us live longer? In combination with its purported health benefits, the authors hypothesized that a lack of the nutrient could drive aging. Their theory was put to the test in roughly 250 14-month-old mice, around 45 in human years. In the end, female mice who took taurine daily lived 12% longer than their counterparts, while males lived 10% longer on average, the paper reads. That's equivalent to seven or eight human years, Yadav said. Looking into the animal's organ functions, the researchers found that taurine mice lived healthier lives too. They had less fat, but they had more bone density. They are able to handle glucose much better. They had better muscle functions. They were less anxious, and they had more memory, and their immune system looked like a younger animal, Yadav said. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Although they were unable to measure taurine's impact on monkey lifespans, that would take 30 years, Yadav said they found the nutrient gave significant health boosts. Taurine-supplemented monkeys had less body weight, they had less fat, they had more bone density, their fasting glucose level was lower, they had less liver damage, and their immune system was functioning better, Yadav said. Anilajin Conklin, assistant professor of pharmaceutical sciences at the University of British Columbia, who was unaffiliated with the study, said, I think it's clear from the paper that taurine is important in a number of pathways that are linked to age-related illnesses and outcomes. But I don't know if taurine is necessarily the answer to everything, she continued, adding that people shouldn't see it as the 
holy grail of anti-aging. It's always a combination of a number of factors that contribute to aging, Conklin said, and yet we don't know how important taurine is or where it fits with other factors. Working at where taurine sits on that casual pile of, fa pie of factors that lead to age-related outcomes is, I think, what the science should be about. What about humans? The researchers are currently trying to raise funding for clinical trials, which as soon as they find the money will take three to four years, yet I've said. He encourages people not to take taurine supplements until this process is complete, in case there are unforeseen side effects. That said, his lab did survey the blood of nearly 12,000 humans with known health conditions taken during a previous study. They found that lower levels of taurine in these subjects were associated with more obesity, more BMI, more liver damage, more hypertension, and more inflammation, among other diseases, Yadav said. Next, his team examined how human taurine levels change with exercise. They found taurine significantly increased following a workout, more so in sedentary people than athletes, the paper reads. We are very optimistic that these studies hopefully will translate to humans, he said. For her part, Conklin noted that it's a big leap from going to animals to human going to animals to human models. While she was glad the team studied humans, she wished that they included a more diverse sample. The exercise experiment was only performed on young men, for example, and may produce different effects in women or older people. I would caution readers about how much this can be given significant implications to whole population, she said. The human translation of these findings is still up in the air for me. I still have a lot of questions. Should I take taurine supplements? The answer is no, at least not yet. Yadav says they need a large, multi-center, multinational trial with thousands of people to truly iron out any side effects. Notably, all the humans they tested so far were of European descent. Yadav especially warns against energy drinks, some of which may contain taurine. You may see reports of energy drinks increasing lifespan and health span, that is absolutely wrong, he said. What potential health benefit that drinks provide is far outweighed by their sugar content and other additives. He also warns against taking commercially available taurine supplements. We do not know whether these are adulterated, how pure the taurine is, he said. That's because natural health supplements like taurine can be sold either as drugs or food, according to Health Canada, and the latter is subject to far less stringent requirements. Most of the other anti-aging interventions are drugs or synthetic molecules, Yadav said. If it turns out it works in humans, we have found a molecule that is natural, produced in your own body and can be easily obtainable in a supplement and can increase the health and the life of a human being. And on to our next article. Navin Alan, strap on, tune in. The sad yet compelling future as seen through Apple's Vision Pro goggles. Virtual reality cuts you off from the world. For that reason alone, I have been deeply skeptical of the tech. Why might we want to erect one more barrier between our senses and the rest of our lives? Having seen the demos and read the reactions to Apple's new Vision Pro headset, However, I am almost having a change of heart. It's not that there isn't cause for worry, 
Rather, it's that though Apple's headset is clearly a first iteration of technology that will evolve over time, it also feels like it could well be the future of tech. By extension, it also feels like the kind of augmented reality that Apple is pitching is the future of remote work more broadly. The device, which looks like a sleek pair of ski goggles, is mostly a virtual reality headset. Though Apple doesn't call it that. You place your head on it and it subsumes your senses with screens in front of your eyes and with headphones over your ears. Imagine seeing the home screen of a tablet and its rows of icons, not on a 10 inch rectangle, but appearing to float across a few feet in front of you. It's also a staggering 3,500 US, meaning that for now it is extremely niche. The pro in the name is the giveaway. Eventually, Apple wants to take this mainstream. The Vision Pro includes a variety of features that differentiate it from related products from Meta or others. For one, you are supposed to look through it rather than at it, meaning that the real world and other people are still present in your view, though what you are seeing is an image produced by cameras on the front of the device, not reality itself. Even more strangely, there is a screen on the outside of the goggles that show video of your eyes to the people in front of you. It's a feature called EyeSight, and Apple claims it's meant to act as a social cue. Essentially, with Visions Pro, Apple is trying to create a new category, a device that long down the road becomes the default way to do intensive tasks like work or watch movie. The aim, it seems, is to eventually replace your computer rather than your smartphone. That's an important distinction for work. Rather than attempting to supplant your phone and creating a world where we're all wandering down the street with goggles on our faces, the Vision Pro is meant to be the thing you use at home or in the office. The pitch for work was this. You place the headset on your face and the work you do with a laptop now expands to fill your field of vision. In front of you, seeming to be six feet wide is an Excel spreadsheet with a chat window to the left and your email to the right. Mid-task, you get a call which you can take as a video or an audio. I'd say that's actually pretty compelling and also weirdly dystopian all at once. On the upscale, the idea of being able to seamlessly move between apps as one is almost literally immersed in them seems like a boon for productivity. On the downside, the fact that the Vision Pro can also be used for content, watching movies, looking at phones, scrolling the web, feels sad, if not a little alienating. Perhaps the most important point is that work is a destination, sometimes literally, but increasingly virtually. The most optimistic thing that you can say about augmented reality is that a computer that you put on your face and then take off is less invasive than one that never leaves your hand. For now, it is early. Those who have used the Vision Pro say that it may be tiring to wear for longer periods and may also get hot. It is also tethered to a battery pack which only lasts two hours and which you must carry. How? We don't yet know. What is obvious is that eventually Apple wants to shrink this tech down so that it's neither as cumbersome or intrusive as it is now. 
that is likely years away as VR killer applications, as well as a more mainstream price. I'm surprised to feel somewhat optimistic about the Vision Pro, or at least impressed. Whether you think of it as a device to use alone, to do work, and be more productive, it's actually quite compelling. Not least because it appears to expand the range of what is possible in computing. But when you think of a work device literally strapped to your body, projecting information into your reality, and making you accessible when you wear it, the sheen wears off a bit. After all, imagine walking into a room and seeing your spouse at work, headset on, immersed in something else and appearing to be only half present. It seems like the future all right, but I'm not altogether sure if it's the one we want. And on to our next article. Could the dreamy resort that inspired every James Bond book be my muse too? I traveled to Jamaica to find out. It's a spring day on Orca Bessa Bay's secluded Button Beach, and the sun is liberally tossing its morning diamonds on a breeze-ruffled sea. A man of certain age, tall and lean and tanned, emerges from the surf with a kind of easeful confidence I can only describe as Bondian. Did he have a good swim? Omar, a hotel staffer, asked the man, offering him a plush towel. Omar, I've never seen a bad swim at Golden Eye, the man replied, smiling. It's a scene that seems lifted from an 007 movie. That moment of glamour and pleasure and leisure before Bond gets the call from the MI6. Golden Eye spread over 52 luxuriant acres on Jamaica's north coast. Owes the name to Ian Fleming. In 1946, the naval intelligence officer bought the land, formerly a donkey racetrack, and proceeded to sketch his dream holiday house on desk blotter. With more self-confidence and architectural savoir-faire, Fleming designed the villa, which remains discreetly perched high above the sea, amid a tropical fantasia of palms and fruit trees. At a simple desk in his high-ceilinged bedroom, replete with glassless, louvred, breeze-welcoming windows, Fleming penned all of his James Bond books, storylines, and characters as improbable as the beauty of their birthplace. Fleming later mused about his books and their providence. Would these books have been born if I had not been living in the gorgeous vacuum of a Jamaican holiday? I doubt it. Writing tends to require a degree of self-isolation. The space, literal, emotional, etc., to presumably rummage through the quarters of the soul. As the late novelist, biographer, and memoirist Francine de Plessis Gray said, the whole thing about writing is how to be able to withstand solitude. It seems to me that I could withstand it quite nicely at GoldenEye. I've long been fascinated by slash wildly jealous of the kind of writer who expresses a need to write. I wish I felt as urgent a need to write as I do a need to avoid it. My laziness will now inspire me to reach for a quote from the late great Nora Ephron who said, the hardest part about writing is writing. When I finally get myself to write, when pursued by a deadline, I need to be properly caffeinated. It can't be too early or too late. My surroundings should be well-windowed, light-glutted, the sun at the right angle to the moon, etc. It occurs to me that identifying the right location is an exercise in procrastination management. 
The right setting serves as a sort of redaction of excuses. Fleming, of course, was not the only author or artist to require a particular setup. Balzac reputedly ate a huge meal at five in the afternoon, then slept till midnight, at which point he rose to write at a small desk in his room for 16 hours. I prefer the approach favored by Neil Simon, who evidently could only pen his plays from a specific bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote the music for Sunset Boulevard at Hotel Bel Air. Meanwhile, Tennessee Williams wrote all his later works in a suite at New York's Hotel Elysee. There are so many examples. I could write a book about this. If only I had a bungalow of my own. I'll admit that I am in the extraordinarily slow and long process of writing a draft of a book on another topic. Obviously, what stands between me and a completed oeuvre is a sublime villa, a diet of sunshine, and perfect Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee, and perhaps a writing desk facing an ever-glittering sea. So when I checked into GoldenEye for a few days, I toyed with the brief fantasy or delusion that I would use my time to find my muse. The boutique hot rustic hideaway now owned by former record producer Chris Blackwell, remains the stuff of fantasy. A protected lagoon, green as molten malachite, ribbons its way through the property, sequined in sunshine. The champagne-colored sands on half-moon-shaped low-key beach are as satiny as a Bond girl evening dress. There are also palm trees, bejeweled in coconuts, rocky outcrops, and British tourists, all of whom incredibly look like Sienna Miller, wafting around in block print caftans and straw bucket hats. But mostly there is a surfeit of sky and sea and vastness, like its own blank page, making the property feel like an infinite open air atelier. But in a slight plot twist, I ended up traveling with my husband, eight-year-old son, which somewhat ruined the solitude and news-meeting narrative. I did not bang up 2,000 words a day as Fleming did on a gold-plated royal, quiet deluxe typewriter. Said typewriter was auctioned off in 1995 and in classic font style. Its whereabouts is unknown. If the whereabouts of my own completed manuscript remain unknown, I did enjoy a swim of my dreams in the lagoon's warm emerald waters and lounged on the low-key and button beach. If this place is basically the world's most delightful, plan air writer's room. It is also a paradise for procrastination. I'll write on my next visit here. You only live twice. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radar Reading Service. Emma title, Why Does Merrill Campaign Ignore Climate Change as Threat Lurks Outside Our Doors? On my way into work this week, I did something I've never done before and never thought I'd do. I wore a mask standing outside on the GO train platform, and I took it off inside when I boarded the train. A year ago, amid a pandemic, I did the same routine, in reverse. Now, thanks to the dangerous particulates in the air, the result of wildfires raging across the country, my crisis mentality has turned on its head. I can forget my troubles when I'm indoors in crowd company. That is, until I step outside into the solitude of nature, as known as the choking haze of climate change and it all comes rushing back. The reality that we are screwed. 
which brings me naturally to the looming municipal by-election. During this current election cycle, candidates and pundits have discussed many issues at length, from gridlocked crime to housing affordability, to more recently, at the Zuma ratio debate, the possibility that rowdy teenagers are impersonating young children in order to ride the TTC for free and set off fireworks. What these candidates and pundits haven't discussed in great detail, or hardly at all, is actual fires. Canada is burning, and as a result, Toronto air quality took a massive hit, ranking this week among the worst in the world. Kids' outdoor activities have been cancelled or limited as a result of smoky air that isn't merely unpleasant to breathe, but hazardous to everyone's health, particularly those with respiratory issues. It is a useless exercise trying to determine if this specific wildfire season is the result of climate change. The truth is that climate change creates conditions for more extreme weather. Last year, according to BBC climate reporter Georgina Renard, scientists determined that high temperatures driven by climate change made drought in the northern hemisphere more likely. The harder hypothesis to prove then is that the series of devastating events is not linked to climate change. Recent year Premier Doug Ford argued that invoking climate change in the discussion about Canada's wildfires is political. I wish that were the case. It's odd, isn't it, that Torontonians are being advised to stay inside their homes to avoid breathing in dangerous air. And yet, what is arguably the city's and world's most pressing crisis has been a topic largely absent from the political campaign. Granted, mayoral candidate Josh Matlow has a plan to boost Toronto's net zero strategy. He says he will invest $200 million into Transform TO, annually via a commercial parking lot levy. This funding, he claims, will allow us to fully electrify the TTC fleet and retrofit existing buildings to be more energy efficient. Mitzi Hunter, meanwhile, has a plan to respond to extreme weather events via a residential flood protection program, as well as an extreme heat protection program. But these plans are not the ones that candidates are talking about on debate stages. These issues do not yet captivate voters or journalists in the same way endless talk about gridlock and empty bike lanes captivate us. Few of us are ready to alter our lifestyles in a meaningful way to face this problem, and few of us are ready to elect a leader who makes climate change a front-of-mind issue. My guess, or rather my hope, is that this week's unsettling and frankly scary events change that. There is no doubt that the doomsday reaction to the wildfire smoke in Toronto and New York City has a strong whiff of Eastern elitism to it. Westerners have been dealing with the fallout of wildfires for years, and air pollution is a daily reality for city dwellers all over the world, not a sign of the apocalypse. In other words, just because East Coast city slickers, myself included, breathe highly polluted wildfire air for the first time in our lives doesn't mean wildfires are brand new events. But if something brand new does emerge from this crisis, let it be a shock to the systems of so many of us who view climate change as a far off, far away catastrophe. This week it's right outside our doors or inside the house if you made the mistake of cracking a window. And on to our next article. This pound of butter costs nearly $10 at Loblaws. Why so expensive? It's complicated. 
nearly 10 bucks for a pound of butter. The latest example of fluid inflation gone wild has sparked a chorus of online outrage after Toronto writer Jamie Bradburn stumbled across a 454-gram package of lactantian salted butter selling for $9.29 at its Leaside Loblaws and posted an image online. I was just laughing because it was listed on the marker as an everyday essential, Bradburn said, and yet it was one of the most sky-high prices for butter I have ever seen, even in this year of inflation. In his post, on Twitter later reposted on Reddit met with plenty of angry reactions. Perhaps Galen goes to the creamery and churns it himself with his silver spoon. Greed one person replied, taking a shot at La Black Co chairman Galen Weston. It's prices like these that make my Costco membership worthwhile. It's $4 cheaper regularly and sometimes goes on sale, so you can stock up another advised. It really sort of hit a nerve and reflected people's frustrations with rising costs of food, Bradburn said about their response to his post. The cost to pay for butter has been climbing for a year and a half, a Loblaws spokesperson told the Star in an email statement. In fact, we frequently sell butter at a loss. That said, we do what we can to provide value. Through promotions and through our own no-name brand, which can be found in the same section for $6.49. Statistics Canada's Consumer Price Index, a broad-based measure of inflation, rose 4.4% year-over-year in April, while grocery inflation slowed down to 9.1% down to 9.7% in March. It continued to outpace the main headline rate. Torontonians are still struggling with sticker shock. Food banks across the city continue to break records for client demand. And almost a third of Canadians believe big grocery chains are profiteering during a difficult time. According to an April survey conducted by Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. But is the steep cost of this butter due to inflation or to price gouging? Sylvian Chalabois, director of the lab, said the answer isn't so simple. For one, the price of butter is impacted by the Federal Dairy Commission, which surveys farmers to assess the cost of producing butterfat in skim milk. It then informs provincial boards how much processors should pay. Because the demand for butter is on the rise, the commission has recommended significant increases for farmers, Sharba says. Those increases at the farm level get compounded through the supply chain. If you're a dairy processor, you end up paying way more, and grocers tend to adjust prices accordingly, he said. 12% at the farm gate can look more like a 25-30% to 30 increase in retail. Dairy Farmers of Ontario, the province's regulatory body for dairy, did not respond to a request for comment. Charlotte Boss said the price of butter can vary depending on a grocer's pricing strategy, even between banners under the same company. For instance, at the time of publication, the same butter product was priced a dollar less at Real Canadian Superstore, which is also owned by La Bla Co. No Frills, a discount supermarket owned by the same parent company, priced the product at $7.49. The high cost could also be due to certain areas having more demand for butter, Charlotte Bois said. It really depends on the demographic, he said. Some stores will sell more butter, so prices tend to be higher. Still, the Consumer Price Index shows that the cost of butter overall has ridden risen at a percentage well above headline inflation since around April 2019. What's a bit concerning is that typically when prices go up like that, consumers will look for alternatives, but some alternatives have actually gone up as well, Charlotte Boss said, referring to products like margarine. That's not as easy to explain as butter. 
In the context of this nearly $10 pound of butter, Charlebois said, price gouging is never possible but difficult to quantify. We can never say beyond reasonable doubt there are some exaggerations. But how do you actually measure greed, he said. If we all agree that $9.29 is too expensive for butter, okay, that's the easy part. The hard part is what is a fair price? Charlebois uses the example of the UK where the government is discussing voluntary price limits for staples to ease the cost of living prices. My guess is that they won't be able to do it because they won't agree on what a fair price actually is. Regardless, Charlebois said if people aren't buying a product at a certain price point, its cost will likely come down. If you think butter is too expensive in the store you're in, just don't buy it, he said. Go somewhere else and prices will drop. Because of inflation, people are very sensitive to higher prices, Charlotte added, emphasizing the importance of shopping around for the best deal. We just need to be careful with how we assess the factors that contribute to food inflation. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 10th issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Esther Provo. Thank you for listening.